Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Hmm. I just want to, like, breathe a little because we've both had a very weird few days. <laughs> yeah, maybe this whole episode should just be us breathing and people can <sighs> breathe with us. Yeah, because we kind of need it. But let me just say that today I am not drinking a Negroni. I'm drinking sparkling wine because I have some things to celebrate. <laughs> uh, oh, which, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which I'll get into a little bit more in the episode. But, you know, we're recording this on Sunday. For those of you who watch uh, things that BLM are doing, there were some arrests yesterday and all of the arrestees were released after lots and lots of work, even from our satellite office here in L.A. <laughs> so um, I am exhausted, but uh, I'm feeling very heartened by that win. Um, you have a win, too. So I hope you're celebrating with something. What you got? Yeah, I'm celebrating with my dandelion wine from the Hoshleg Brewery in Montreal. I think it's in Montreal. If it's not, it should be in Montreal with a name like that. And what are you celebrating? Oh, it's like so internalized that I totally forgot. Well, um, last night I did a webinar and maybe some of the listeners, maybe you folks listened to it. Now you've got the benefit of being in the future because it's actually Sunday and I haven't done the webinar yet. But the um, Public <laughs> Service Alliance of Canada, Canada's uh, National Public Sector Union for Federal Workers, um, we, I had a week with them. I had a week with their leadership. I had a week with their members. And I went from being disinvited to a workshop to being invited uh, back to the workshop. And we will be talking about that too. So tonight I am celebrating and uh, I'm pretty happy. It's It was a nice victory and you will all hear about it in, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> But first, I'm sure we have some people to thank. We do. Uh, so thank you so much to everyone who has uh, donated to us for the first time or changed their donation or came back. Um, and there's also a lot of names here that I know are longtime listeners. And so thank you so much for um, deciding to throw us some money. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, so thank you, Emma, Steve, Mohini, Sayaka, Julia, Marco, Mita, Brett, Darcy, Carolyn, Madison, Elizabeth, Nicole, Tendermoon, Peter, Rufina, Deanna, Peter, Duncan, Dorothy, and Cassie. Thank you so much to you all. And thanks to everybody uh, who supports us, whether that support is monetary or that support is you're sharing your Instagram stories with us. My God, I still haven't downloaded it onto my um, onto my phone. And so all I can do is 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 like and accept your um, your comments. And they're really wicked to see. So thank you so, so much. I'm trying to follow people back, um, but the, <laughs> the app is so shitty. So if we're not following you, it's not because we don't want to. It's because... I Instagram wasn't made for me, Sandy. It was made for other people, but but not not me. I mean, truly, people try to keep the follow ratio down, Nora. Like people aren't trying to follow everybody who follows them. That's not how Instagram works. I okay. I I would assume. I mean, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I get that, but I I just you know we got a community of people and. I know I'm just playing around. I don't give a shit about that. Of course, that. <laughs> and I, I, the posts that I'm seeing are cool, um, but it's just it's it's hard when you're not when you actually don't have the app. <laughs> yeah, you should probably get the fucking app. I just have to de I have to delete um, two credit union apps on my phone to make space. 
this is um you know so few people have this problem so That's but you know problems. like i'm 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 still i'm still sure that we can figure it out you can solve this we're going to get there but until nora does we will only have two <laughs> posts on our instagram <laughs> Thank you to the almost a thousand people who are following us. Anyway. Oh my god, you you are all so amazing, and and I'm I'm dying to get out there. We're gonna see you all. We're gonna meet you all someday. Someday we're gonna get there. Someday. Oh my god. So yesterday, what did you see happen yesterday, Nora? Like, what was it like watching it from the internet? I first saw that folks had painted some statues in Toronto pink, which was really cool. And I didn't, I couldn't see what they were. You know, I'm scrolling through, mm-hmm. uh, through Twitter's early Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really, I didn't really put together who was doing the actions. I, I, I saw pink and I did see the defund the police color being like, ah, maybe that's the same pink. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but it was not targeting police. It was targeting statues of people who are known for helping to create Canada as a white supremacist nation. And I then saw a note from Sarah Jama, who is a friend of the podcast and who's a really awesome activist from Hamilton. And she was saying that there was trouble, that people were being detained and that the police were on the scene. And that's where I really started to pay attention. Then, of course, Sandy, as you know, we were in touch and I got to get kind of like some up-to-date information of what was going on. But then the whole rest of the day was just this ridiculous PR exercise, I think, with the police, uh, where the police were trying to, like, control the message, control the scene, tell people what was going on. But their message was not at all jiving with what was coming out from the activists who were able to say, no, that's not true. No, uh, people have not shown up to the to the division headquarters yet uh, or uh, they've been moved or there's councils being denied or or or. And so it was pretty amazing to see that. And I think uh, tonight would be really great for us to talk about is certainly what happened. Uh, and if there's ways that people can support uh, the folks who have been arrested, that would be really great. But also, like, the action itself, I think, is really important, uh, especially as someone who is really connected to one of those statues. It's a funny way to say it. To say it. But uh, one of the statues is Egerton Ryerson, which is, uh, which is the namesake of Ryerson University, and his statue stands outside of the old facade of the normal school, which was the first... Uh, kind of the first public education institution in Toronto, uh, which forms like a wall of uh, one of Ryerson University's biggest uh, buildings. So, yeah, that's what I saw. What did what did you see? I suspect you had a, 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 a different uh, look into all of this. Yeah, you know, as someone who is located outside the city, I would say also for, for any people who are like part of activist groups out there, we have had this uh, um, hilarious model um, at BLM Toronto, which is, you know, at first was not by design and now it almost feels like it is by design. We always have somebody who's outside the city and that person is always doing um, all of the written work or work that you don't need to be on the ground for, which is such a fantastic way to set up uh, like a division of labor because that person's never going to be distracted by what's happening on the ground because they, by definition, can't be. And so I was doing a hell of a lot of work um, over here on in the L.A. office of uh, uh, BLM Toronto. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you're right. Like, this is what happened, right? Like, people were like, 
I mean, the idea of the statues, right, for, for folks who are like, you know, this is, is this about defund the police or what? We, you know, we were trying to make a point um, about how these monuments to colonialism, monuments to slaveholders and slavery, white supremacy, are all connected to this continuing um, like expression of white supremacy and colonialism that is the police, right? So that was the the relationship between the campaign that we're doing right now and these statues. And of course, we wanted to be uh, connected to uh, these kind of global conversation about uh, glorifying certain parts of a really violent colonial white supremacist history. And, um, and so, you know, like the idea was to you know, just have these, this kind of like artistic intervention and disruption of these statues, one which is Egerton Ryerson, uh, who was responsible for the creation of the residential school system, uh, which was also a system that was, uh, you know, rep- which is a tool of genocide, okay, a tool of genocide against indigenous people, and was also uh, replicated in South Africa, but also was kind of the um, the the guy who created the idea of kind of compulsory school altogether, which is why there's a statue of him and why he is celebrated. But that idea of compulsory school was enacted differently upon different groups of people. Um, and so for black people and indigenous people, that compulsory, compulsory schooling idea was a um, uh, a manifestation of the way that society wanted to kind of destroy uh, our cultures. And so the fact that there's a school named after him, the fact that there's a statue um, that uh, celebrates him in Toronto and, you know, is constantly, constantly criticized by students, faculty, members of the Ryerson community and beyond um, is pretty reprehensible. And so, you know, this is this action uh, continues decades of people saying uh, this thing shouldn't be here. And so we started at Ryerson. Uh, marched to Queen's Park, to the south side of Queen's Park, where there's a uh, John A. McDonald uh, statue. Again, another uh, huge proponent of genocide against Indigenous people um, and also a part of a white supremacist um, anti-Black institution. And then finally to the, to the north side of Queen's Park, where a statue of <laughs> Edward the Seventh uh, is uh, like on his horse. I suppose it's supposed to be majestic or something. I've always thought it looks really fucking stupid, but in any case, there's a statue of him there. And, you know, pink pink paint was splotched on these statues and some banners that had messages about how these statues, you know, what they glorify and how they shouldn't be there. And so that was the idea. Um, you know, it was pretty low key. We didn't um, uh, put it out broadly, so it would be like a giant rally. I think there was a uh, hundred confirmed people who were there, so that's not very much for um, the size of a, a group in Toronto. And you know, people were just doing the. It was early morning. It was like it started at nine a.m. Like, who wants to even be at a rally at nine a.m. Right? <laughs> and um, you know, people snake through the city to do these things. By the time. Uh, you know, we got 
to the north side of Queens Park, the police had deployed about 40 police officers for these maybe 100 people, somewhere between 80 to 100 people. So that's like one cop per two or three people. That's (laughs) a normal ratio. That's ridiculous. And uh, it became like all of a sudden it became like this battle between like, you know, two groups. And now like I should mention that this is like such... a a weird time to be doing activism compared to every other time because, um, you know, the police are are trying the same tactics that they've perhaps always tried. Um, But what's different now is we have the ability to speak back to them immediately online (laughs) to say, actually, that's not what's happening. And we have the ability to show uh, photos or video to back up our statements. Um, and that was happening all day from the moment that people got to Queens Park. And so the, the police initially attempted to kettle the, um, the 80 to 100 people that were there. And so if you don't know what kettling is, it's when the police like surround you and then um, tr- move in when they've surrounded you on all sides um, closer and closer. So they're, they're boxing a group of people in and it, it, it's meant to escalate tensions and get people really, really nervous. And then um, eventually, usually because because you get really nervous and because people start um, getting agitated, they attack. So they started to kettle. And because, you know, we're good at what we do, uh, we had de-escalators um, who dispersed the crowd after uh, comp- trying to de-escalate the police and ended the rally. And that was it. It was like, okay, this has become too dangerous. The police have responded uh, ridiculously, ended the rally. You know, without saying too, too much uh, about uh, the circumstances of people's arrest, because I don't know what that's going to do to affect particular charges or whatever, um, there were people who were literally doing nothing that they decided to arrest, three people. <laughs> and, and you know, they put out this tweet while it's happening that says, you know, there's a demonstration is occurring. We're doing everything that we can to keep demonstrators safe. What the fuck? That is the, the, the tweet <laughs> that the police put out. It also says something about like assisting demonstrators and trying to complete um, their protest and make sure that everyone is safe during the protest. And it was like that it was like obviously not happening. Right. Like we in every uh, demonstration that we plan as a group, we have like several different safety plans um, and several different safety actors who are a part of our group uh, to make sure that people are safe. And I will 100% tell you that what we are trying to keep ourselves safe from are the cops. <laughs> like there's nothing else to be kept safe from. Um, and so the fact that they put out um, that messaging is, you know, just, uh, you know, part of their propaganda of how they um, they try to explain themselves. Um, and then, you know, they arrested these folks and they they said that they were taking them to 52 Division. 52 Division is two minutes away from Queens Park from where we were. Um, our lawyers called in to try to 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 find them to re- to make sure that they had representation for over an hour. Uh, the police said that they weren't there, that they hadn't arrived yet, that they were still oh on their God. way. And it's like, where were we? Where were they then? What were they doing? And it wasn't until we started posting online incessantly about where are they that they then called back our lawyer to be like, oh, actually, they're here. Sorry. You know, um, uh, throughout the day, uh, 
people were trying to get medicine to one of the to the one of the people who were arrested that the police refused to let people get in contact with this person to get them the, the medicine that they need um, throughout the day uh, the police were telling um, our legal representatives that oh these folks have actually uh, requested other legal representatives and that's not the case it's not what had happened um, and they were being prevented from um, accessing uh, you know their rights to to call to make sure that they uh, had were able to call um, legal counsel it's like it was it, and you know we were able to to say that uh, to the community as well and then they put out a press release saying that the uh, the the people who were arrested had been released two of them were and one would be staying over overnight and and that wasn't wow. true it was like we were we you know when they put that out we were so confused we were like where could they possibly be maybe they don't have their phones and we're you know calling family members trying to figure out did they take a cab like what happened and then realize no, they they hadn't been released at all. That was just a release that the police put out, perhaps because they were getting a lot of phone calls. It looked like that at one point they disconnected their phone lines. Our lawyers had to call another division to get patched into this division. Um, they were getting a lot of phone calls. So I guess they just put out a release to get everybody to calm down. And it did get us to to stop like incessantly calling them for about an hour or an hour and a half as we were trying to figure out what happened and then realized... Nope, they were still <laughs> in mm. there. It was just a confluence of ridiculous tactics uh, by the police. A lot of lies being told directly about them. Chief Saunders gone on television at one point and said that the detainees at this point were detaining themselves because they were refusing to sign a form when lawyers hadn't been able to speak to them. It was like, what? They're detaining themselves now? That's yeah. what you're saying? <laughs> And then he said that the people on the outside were creating some sort of narrative and lying about what was happening. But it was like, no, you guys are the ones who said that they were released and they weren't. You guys are the ones that said that they requested different legal counsel, but they didn't. You guys are the ones that moved them from 52 Division to 14 Division and 55 Division without telling anyone, least of all their lawyers. Like, what is going on? And this is all for putting washable pink paint <laughs> on some statues. I'm just stunned uh, by that. It's like the police certainly showed yesterday um, on uh, Saturday in Toronto that nobody runs them but themselves, okay? And no one's right. going to tell them what to do and they don't give a shit about any sort of due process or rules that they're supposed to follow. You know, I feel like you you folks made a tactical error. I think that what you should have done was write Nazi on the statues. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then because, it would they would have been totally fine with it. They would have been like, oh my god, that's fine, that's great. No, they'd be like, oh, this is a hate crime against the British royalty. <laughs> the way that uh, if we wrote the Nazi vandalism. On it? Oh, you mean like? Oh, I see. You mean like a like a hateful Nazi? Like you know, because they love the Nazis. Yeah, no, the way that they uh, have reacted to the vandalism of a. Of a of a gravestone in Oakville, Ontario, of an actual Nazi, calling it yeah a hate crime. <laughs> un unfucking believable. Unfucking believable. Yeah, I want to go back to um, the people that you chose to target. <laughs> what a stupid way to say that. Uh, the people, <laughs> the the statues, and who who they who they commemorate. 
Because it's, it's you know, we can look at, at someone like Egerton Ryerson as being um, the founder of residential schools and therefore, uh, you know, his genocidal um, involvement is very clear and we know the impacts that it has to this day. But if we if we just look at the, the Canadian school system, knowing that the same person had a hand in creating both is really important. And it's important because it helps to link the regular school system, the public school system that all of us go to, and the residential school system together, it shows that they come from the same logic, which is a really mm-hmm. bad uh, sign for what it means for the public school system, because we know that the residential school systems were abusive and and unbelievable horrors existed within their walls. And the idea was that that it would be a genocide, that they would be able to eliminate indigenous cultures and language and knowledge through a school system. But the same hands created the regular school system as well. So what does that mean? That means that our public school system, the normal school system that everybody is in, is also a system that maintains white supremacy And I don't think that people talk enough about the public school system in those terms. I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a consensus, there's a clear consensus on the horrors of the residential school system. And if you asked an average person on the street, uh, would they support these schools being reopened and you list all the horrors, they would say, of course not. Um, That was back then. That was how horrible we were as a society. And we're not like that anymore, except the regular school system still exists. And you can still see impacts on black and indigenous students in these school systems that we're still we collectively as a society trying to deal with. I mean, Stephen Lecce, that fucking piece of garbage, weirdo freak from the fucking conservative party in Ontario, progressive conservative party. uh, He's the minister of education and he just announced that they're going to de-stream grade nine. So in grade nine, you won't go into uh, an advanced or a general stream. I mean, that's how I went to grade nine. I'm not sure that was like making anything better back then because there's a whole bunch of other fucking problems because they're not actually dealing with the core issues. But that is a way, of course, that black students uh, are and indigenous students are ensured that they're out of like the academic pursuit of getting into university later. And once you're streamed at a young age, it's very, very difficult to bounce into a different stream and then find yourself into university, even if you're totally brilliant and that's where you want to be. And so by throwing paint on the statue, I mean, you folks didn't behead him. You didn't, <laughs> no. you know, he didn't get set on fire. There was nothing that happened to the statue that could have happened to Kerr Hall, the building that is right behind it. Um <laughs> Right. Unless like Kerr Hall covered in paint, like fuck Ryerson would probably paint Kerr Hall pink for pride because that's the kind of school it is. So what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Um, This is a guy that really does need a magnifying glass put up to his legacy because I went to Ryerson for 10 years, uh, seven years. (laughs) But I was around Ryerson for 10 (laughs) years because I was also the editor in chief of a student newspaper there. And um, I remember when the task force on racism happened on campus, which was something that I was I was peripherally involved in. I was involved in the group that got it called, which was great. And Ryerson's name appeared, of course, in the report as being someone that we needed to reconsider our relationship with because of, of his history. But we didn't learn anything about Ryerson. You, you only knew he was the founder of the normal school system because that's literally what the plaque says that you have to walk by every day. And you probably looked at it maybe once in four fucking years. And so I think that the actions that you that you folks took are so crucial to allowing us to pause and say, okay, 
I mean, most progressives know that John A. Macdonald was literally a fucking white supremacist. That was literally he wanted Canada to be white. He built the the the, the railway through scandal, the Pacific scandal being you know, one of the biggest scandals in Canadian politics ever. Uh, and the, the goal of building the Pacific Railway, the CPR, was to bring white settlers to Western Canada. That was literally the goal. Oh, except for the secondary goal, which was to also bring the Canadian military in to stop the rebellions at Duck Lake. Uh, and, uh, well, it had already happened at Red River uh, a decade earlier in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Look, I think you're doing a, I think you're doing a lot with the word most there when you say that most people know that John A. Macdonald is a white supremacist. I don't I actually don't think that that's the case because uh, Canada has a way of never, ever talking about its history. And so I think that you're doing some crucial education here, despite the fact that the Irish have already figured this out and have eliminated <laughs> statues uh, in Ireland. But go on. Well, it's just so it's just so ridiculous that um, that there would be any real controversy over throwing paint on a statue. I mean, well, the statues provide education. At least that's what all these haters in my email inbox are saying, right? Like the statues must must stay, even if they are reprehensible, because they teach us about our past. I love that. So um, I was thinking about that line today because Marcus G at the Globe and Mail, who's a columnist in the Globe and Mail, and he, t- he tends to write about Toronto-based issues. I remember so well in 2009 when the task force on racism was announced at Ryerson, he wrote a column all about how Ryerson, it, it cannot be a, a racist university. It is the most diverse university in Canada. And I believe there was a line either in the headline or it was in the in the lead. It was like, uh, look really closely for racism at Ryerson because otherwise you'll miss it. And the whole column just dismissed how ridiculous this exercise was. And he, in this week's Globe and Mail, was talking about the importance of statues to educate us of our past. And I wanted <laughs> to take the Egerton Ryerson statue down and like put it into his bed the way that Jedediah Springfield's head statue was put into Lisa Lisa Simpson's bed on that great episode. Um, You know I don't watch The Simpsons, so I have no idea what you're talking about. I'll I'll trust you on this. I'm talking to the fans that are like not Gen (laughs) Z. (laughs) Okay, cool. But, But it's clear that it doesn't work. It doesn't fucking work. It's a lie. Yeah, like nobody's looking at statues around the city being like, oh man, seeping history into my brain. Yes, uh, thank you. And obviously nobody is looking at these statues and learning about the disgusting parts of the history because the part, the point of the statue is to revere. And the plaques that are usually next to statues say something like great man, you know, created education, blah, blah, clap, clap. Now I know there's like an additional addendum kind of situation at Ryerson now, but that's not the case with most of these statues. Statues, and again, it, it doesn't do education because it's not what what it's there for. It's there to revere the history. But you, <sighs> you know, one of the, the the one great names in Toronto, I have to just shout out, is the namesake of George Brown College because George Brown was murdered by a disgruntled employee. <laughs> <laughs> Which we all know because the statues told us. Yeah, it sure didn't. It also doesn't tell how ruthless he was uh, with his employees, which is why he was murdered by an employee, because he was uh, a newspaper man in Toronto and uh, oversaw a strike that actually helped to fight towards Canada's eight-hour workday. But uh, no thanks to George fucking Brown. So I guess this really just means that the University of Toronto is the only pure university in the city of Toronto, because York, of course, is in Vaughan. (laughs) 
I can't even respond to that. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what to say in response to that. That's <laughs> freaking disgusting. Um, <laughs> but anyway, ah, <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, just to close out like that particular story, I think all of that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, everyone was released. And I think that it had a lot to do with uh, the calls that everybody was making um, uh, to the the police uh, department, but also like online and, uh, you know, politicians came out and uh, people were were tweeting about it and sharing it and so on. So, you know, we still have uh, more to do because these folks have charges. And so there will be a campaign um, uh, to, to talk to the Crown attorneys to be like, uh, what are you doing by taking these charges on? Because if they decide to, because, you know, like as Nora and I talked about online, like there are engineering students who, you know, every year during orientation, like it is a uh, goal to deface these statues as much as possible, which with far more harmful things than washable paint. <laughs> and so the fact um, that the police would decide to arrest people who are doing this um, uh, speaks to what they were doing it for, right? Because if it's fine for yearly university students um, to uh, deface Mar these statues um, with no consequence whatsoever and in fact celebration um, from the community then uh, what is the difference here what really is the difference between what what those people were doing and what we were doing um, well the difference is the political act and the difference is that we were calling to defund the police and that the police who had a really bad week right like there were charges there's an investigation against like this tow truck scheme there's these charges laid in this human trafficking scheme. Um, there's, there's uh, you know, the Terrios, um, one of the Terrios being convicted of uh, assault against Defonte Miller. All of this stuff has been happening. The father of the the father of the person who killed the the man in London, Ontario, the London's like most recent homicide. The father is a police officer who's been charged with breach of trust for some reason. Right, and there's also a, a police officer in Peel region who is charged uh, in the the shooting of uh, the non lethal, thank goodness, shooting of a mother uh, during on Mother's Day who was visiting her son. Um, and you know, the Peel police were very specific online to say, sorry, she's a former police officer. And it was like, yeah, she, she resigned five minutes before she was arrested. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> Peel police. It's just like, you know, uh, all of this has happened. I think the police were really desperate to turn the eye, um, to say like, look at these terrible people, but it's like, we're not terrible people. Like there's, you know, after everything yesterday, um, I just have more and more conviction about the fact that we're going to win. Because you know what, Nora? Mm -hmm. This shit cannot continue forever. That I know as a fact. It can't continue forever. The other facts that I know is that they can't eliminate us. I mean, they've been trying for literally 600 years. It's not possible. Okay, so they can't eliminate us and this can't go on forever. There's only one other, I mean, there's only two other outcomes. One is that black people just accept uh, that we're going to be like mistreated by the police forever. I'm going to tell you right now that shit's not going to happen. And the other outcome, the only other outcome is that this shit ends with them ending. Right. And that's how I know it's going to end. It's like this crap can't continue forever because it's so ludicrous. It's so ridiculous. It will end eventually. And the only outcome that makes sense uh, is us winning. And I feel 
um, uh, like super confident in that, more confident than that and ever than ever after yesterday's ridiculous antics by the Toronto police. So one of the things that uh, struck me this past week that I wanted to mention on the podcast because, I, you know, I like solidifying my my uh, predictions. I know, Sandy, you do too. Uh, so this is not going to be a segment, but just a small interlude. Um, so the we stuff is continuing. It's, uh, it's now at the Ethics Committee. The Liberals are trying really hard to limit how much the Ethics Committee is able to investigate in the, in the NDP. And the Conservatives are, you know, putting the gears to them. It has a real SNC-Lavalin ethics committee kind of feel, which uh, I like. Back again. Yeah, yeah. it feels like (laughs) there's no pandemic. It's like, this is sweet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've been thinking a lot about how the fuck the liberals are going to get out of this. And the liberals always have two options. They either pivot left or they pivot right. And when they pivot right, they do so because they think that the conservatives are weak and they're able to pick off some of their support. And I think that the we scandal is so big that there's no way that they're going to be able to pivot right, which leaves pivoting left. The last week and a half has been full of columnists and reporters really focusing on childcare. So I just want to put this prediction out there that I bet you the Liberals will will announce a major childcare thing in the next, I don't know, uh, while uh, as a way to pivot away from we and to try and get, gain back people's confidence because everybody knows the pandemic has been bad for women. And if you want to learn more about that, you can check out, I don't even know, what was it, episode 102 or something? One of our COVID episodes where we talked about uh, how this whole thing was being pinkwashed. It still is being pinkwashed. And if the liberals put up a scheme, it'll be like that whole episode will be like fucking fact. <laughs> yeah, I fact. mean, like, this is a prediction, but it's like a re-prediction because we made that prediction like earlier. And here it comes. It's coming, you guys. It's coming. <laughs> it's going to be a child care announcement. We're telling you. We told you. And we'll say we told you so when it happens. Totally. Okay. Nora, mm-hmm. what did you go through this weekend? Like what what's happening with you or at the end of last week? Yeah, I had a pretty weird week, too. And, you know, as, as you said, that it makes a lot of sense to be outside of a city where you've got an action uh, for you at least have one activist who's able to kind of coordinate this work. I got to say, it's really useful to be caught in the middle of a scandal or a situation and be fully removed from it physically. Because I mean, <laughs> it was like kind of like playing video games because I was really not in the mix. Um, so a month and a half ago, I was asked by the Public Service Alliance of Canada which is a union that represents uh, federal workers in a whole bunch of different industries across Canada, to do a workshop on anti-racism. And I have to say, I am not super comfortable doing this stuff. I don't think white people should be doing these workshops. But the hook, the way they kind of got me kind of convinced to say yes, was that they wanted to do a workshop specifically for white people. And the the request was coming from someone uh, who's racialized and was like, I'm tired of having to have these conversations myself. White people ha- should have these conversations themselves. And so we worked through the, the format, and the format that we came up with uh, ended up being a conversation between me and Paige Gallette, who is a white horse-based activist who I've known for many, many years and who uh, I have a very good rapport with. She's a good rapport with me. So the idea was going to have it be a conversation to have this kind of exploration of anti-racism for white people. The... Rebel Media got a hold of the workshop description and made the most 
boring six minute video about me. I did you did you watch it by chance? I really tried. I really <laughs> tried. I really fucking tried. Okay. Like I was like, let me get into this video. And I think it was about 90 seconds in. And like, you know, like I really fucking tried. Okay. But 90 seconds in, I had probably been asleep for 20 seconds and was like, I can't do this. I really can't. I cannot force myself to listen to this man. Yeah, I got to two minutes and a half and the video's about me. Two minutes and a half. (laughs) Wow. Well done. I mean, yeah, it is about you. Well, you know, and I'm a a fucking narcissist. I'm like, yeah, David Menzies, talk about me. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so boring. I can't I can't get to the end. Um, and aside, I, I hope I've got, um, I have a cousin who is wonderful, uh, Sandy, who, you know, um, who I've asked, I don't know if this is going to happen. Um, but, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to issue a video of that video, but where David Menzies is dressed as a clown. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Come through cousin Loretta. Yeah. I understand that it's happening. Um, and he, of course, he's like. A perfectionist, so he's like, "Well, I'm trying to make sure that when he moves the side, his clown hair bounces." And I'm like, "No, no, that's too oh fucking. No, it doesn't have to be that good. I mean, he's a clown, like fucking. Anyway, so so the the, the rebel media puts out this video. I was away. Uh, my my family uh, went to one of Quebec's public park uh, cabins. We rented a cabin for a couple of days, and I I was like, I went up from the fire one night and just randomly checked my phone. And uh, someone was like, fuck you, white people, racism doesn't exist. And I was just like, hey, please eat some shit. And that (laughs) that freaked out the leadership of the PSAC. And so the president and the vice president, Chris Allward and Magali Picard, uh, made the decision to to disinvite me. And they they tried to parse the difference between, you know, their support of the workshop. They wanted to go ahead. They wanted to find someone else, but they couldn't support me telling someone to eat shit. And there was some discussion. Is this person real? Are they a member? Are they a retired member or whatever? I was like, very clear. This is a bot. It doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so I got disinvited. And what that set off was quite a lot of uh, frustration and anger from... Uh, PSAC members and PSAC staff because, you know, Black and Indigenous staff at PSAC have been doing days of action. They have been walking off the job periodically to protest working conditions that are anti-Black, anti-Indigenous and racist. And so this was kind of seen within that broader picture of the culture of the union. And uh, last Friday was, I believe, a day full of meetings where there were lots of discussions held. And Chris and Magali changed their mind. They admitted they were wrong. They called me to apologize. And and for folks who are outside the, the labor movement, I mean, it kind of doesn't make it doesn't sound that impressive. I think maybe the president of the PSAC, you don't really appreciate kind of how the hierarchy works in the labor movement. But it's kind of a big deal when the president does call you. I mean, it's not like a big deal, like I feel like it's a big deal, but it's like they're the president. They're like a high level official that um, don't make these phone calls very often um, and probably don't apologize very often like this. And so they made a full apology, a full mea culpa, and the workshop was back on. And if you're listening to us on Tuesday, it happened last night and I hope you tuned in. <laughs> you know, I one of the things that I think is really significant about this is the fact that, you know, this is this is an example of a public position being taken uh, people having a reaction to that public position and, uh, and you know, the P- PSAC or 
PSAC, sorry. <laughs> and PSAC, the leadership of PSAC, um, doing some reflection, taking a look at what decision they made and changing their mind. And that happens so rarely right now uh, in the public sphere. I feel like people think that they, once they take a position, they really need to stick to it and defend it no matter what, no matter what they learn, no matter what people think, no matter what type of position they hold. But I really think that it is important to have these kind of public examples of people saying, mm, you know what, uh, we fucked up. Like, look, anti-racism is hard, you know, um, doing the right thing when it comes to any sort of liberation politic is difficult. And if you've been doing, you know, like having the, an institu- having an institution exist for so long, um, uh, that, um, you know, replicates some of these forces that we're now trying to struggle against in some of the activities that we're engaging in, you are going to likely fuck up from time to time. And it is okay uh, to change your mind publicly. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm sure it was like, annoying and difficult um, and really fucking irritating for especially the black members of the PSAC who struggled to make this a thing. But it is uh, a good thing to model publicly how um, an institution can change its mind. And that that doesn't mean that the institution falls apart. That doesn't mean um, that, you know, like you're like really shit and suck. Although like I'm not saying that, you know, they aren't like I don't know that those types of things. What I'm saying is that the idea of changing your mind is something that we should always be open to. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'm because this is part of a, of a broader context that I don't know much about. You know, I'm, I I work within the labor movement. My only contact within PSAC is in the communications department. Um, and, and even then it's pretty limited. So I, I'm not I have no idea really what life is like on the day to day. But throughout this process, I certainly heard from so many black and indigenous workers that things aren't great, that they're really struggling to be seen and to be heard. And the problem is, is that, you know, a public sector job is a really good job. It's it's a job where you dedicate your life to serving, you know, your fellow citizens. And for racialized people, finding work in the public sector can often mean, um, you know, finding yourself in a new class or gives you connection to your community and you're able to help out. And so they're actually really, really important positions that we need to make sure that people have access to and that they're safe in those jobs and that they are supported in their jobs. And so... I mean, I really hope that that the decision being changed is used as an example of how the PSCC can can change, but not just for them. I mean, like anti-black racism within the labor movement is endemic. And I, I, I really hope that other leaders paid attention to what was going on and take note. And the one thing that I just want to highlight, I mean, Chris Allward's letter in it, he said that he held me to his own personal standards of decorum. And he realized that that was an error, that he that he has no right to do that. That doesn't make sense to do that, that he has no idea what it's like to be you know, told to kill myself like 100 times on Twitter. And so maybe that's why I tell people to eat shit. And that was his error. And I just thought that was a really good way of 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 helping white people like think maybe Maybe me projecting my own experiences and my own how I would react in a certain circumstance or situation is not the best way to navigate a situation like this. Mm -hmm. 
So, like, broad, more broadly speaking than just PSAC, I mean, you know, this is a super important moment, and the labor movement has not been as vocal or as active as I think they should be. Uh, Sandy, I'm sure you have an opinion on that. Um, and so, I mean, if you're listening and you're a, a union member or a union activist, I mean, we have a serious problem where unions are part of what maintains white supremacy on the workplace. And we have to figure out how bargaining committees, how collective agreements, how labor law all contribute to white supremacy, maintain white supremacy. So then how do we use these tools to try and undo some of that those those policies that maintain white supremacy and make workplaces less anti-black, anti-indigenous and racist? Yeah, I think there's a sense of uh, like complacency from uh, the labor movement because, you know, they're like inherently on the left, um, they're inherently progressive. And so, uh, you know, generally people in leadership think that not much really needs to change from year to year because, uh, hey, we're the good guys. Um, but look, you know, a lot of people are struggling within labor movements uh, with the, the anti-blackness that exists within the, the labor movement. And you know, a lot of that uh, can be seen uh, in in how uh, leadership uh, coalesces and how decisions are made and who really makes those decisions and how that affects people on the ground. And so there has to be a real desire to reflect and uh, be open to shifting the way uh, that the labor movement works in order to truly deal with these issues that, you know, people on the ground, the rank and file who you know, people who are working working class jobs are by and large going to be people of color, people who are black, people who are indigenous. And uh, I think uh, the labor movement, if, you know, if you are truly committed um, to be a force for justice in this world, and quite frankly, you know, the labor movement should be one of the strongest institutions that we have as progressive people. Um, I, I would argue that we're that it's it's not right now, and maybe we can talk about that at a, at another date on the podcast. But it should be, um, and if the labor movement wants to really be that, uh, they really have to contend with the way that the way that they are set up right now uh, does replicate uh, anti-blackness and a whole host uh, of other hegemonic systems. I just want to mention to folks who might not know this, and if you're a labor activist, you know what right to work is. You know that right to work legislation allows people to opt out of their labor, of their union dues and not be a member of the union, but then they are kind of, you're forced to represent them and it just decimates unions. Right to work was the invention of white supremacy because in the Southern U.S. states in the 1940s, white workers refused to have the same membership in the same organization as black workers. And so they organized so that they didn't have to pay union dues and be the same members of with black workers. And so that is the foundation of right to work. And so every time we see Jason Kenney say something that references right, right to work or the Ontario progressive conservatives talk about right to work or Brad Wall in Saskatchewan talk about anything that re resembles white to right to work. My God, it's like 
I've basically gone down to the bottom of my gin. I can't say this anymore. <laughs> um, they all have a connection to literally anti-black racism. That that is the that is the foundation of the right to work movement in the United States. And so showing solidarity with workers, regardless of 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 race and of class and of gender and of sexual orientation, all of the the the, the grounds that we say that we're in solidarity with. It actually means fighting out anti-black racism directly and head on and loudly. And I really encourage anybody with a position of power within their unions um, to do work on these issues, regardless of how uncomfortable it is. 